Let's pray. Lord, we're going to open your word tonight as we do each week. And we're going to do it trusting as we do each week that you're going to speak to us and that you're going to open our eyes uh, to see what you want us to see and that you're going to soften our hearts because it's what you do, uh, allowing uh, your word to take root and to change us, uh, to form us into your image. We thank you in advance for doing this work. And if we can aid that process in any way, help us to be receptive. Thank you. Amen. What do you see? What's the first thing you see? First thing I saw when I looked at the picture was, of course, the old man, but that wasn't the case. Some of my kids saw the lady holding the baby and the old man with the cane and a dog, which I thought was the dude's hand for the longest time, but that's a dog on its side. Uh, There's different ways to see things, isn't there? Um, And sometimes you only see it one way until someone reveals something different to you. Thanks, Fia. And our text this evening, uh, it's about seeing. In fact, the gospel writers love to talk about sight and seeing. And go ahead, Fia, you can take it off. Um, And we're going to look at a passage tonight in Luke's gospel, and we're going to look at it four different ways. And I've got Choose Your Own Adventure folders up here. So we're going to look at it by seeing evangelistically. We're going to look at the text by seeing theologically. And we're looking at the text by seeing historically. And this is the last way we're going to see it top secret for your eyes only. Okay, so I'm going to put that there. So I'm going to need a volunteer to help me decide which one of these topics to start with. I did see Zoe's hand go up super quick. You're a woman, you are fast. Okay, come on up. And of these three, you can't pick the top secret one. That's this last. Um, Where should we start? Evangelistically, theologically, theologically. All right, good choice. I like it. She's a thinker. All right. All right, you can, thank you. All right, so we're going we're gonna to look at the text theologically. What text are we looking at? We are going to look at Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. If you'll stand with me, I'll read it, and then we'll look at it theologically, and uh, then someone else will help me decide what's next. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing in around him, And listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, We worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I'll do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them, 
And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. O Lord, for amazement had seized him and all of his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you will be catching people. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Different ways of seeing the same text. And as per Zoe's request, we are going to look at the text, first of all, theologically. Theologically. It makes sense that there is theology in the Bible. Theology is the study of God. The Bible is the Word of God. Makes sense, right? Uh, from the Bible, we come to systematic categories sometimes, such as maybe you've heard of Christology, the study of the nature and person and mission of Jesus the Christ. There's soteriology, the study of how one is saved or the salvation of God. There's pneumatology, which is the study of the Holy Spirit. And it goes on and on like this, just fancy words to make everyone feel not smart enough. My bookshelves are full of volumes of theology books, and this passage is full of theology. But the type of theology I want to look at this evening isn't necessarily systematic theology, it's biblical theology. That is, how does the text and its context and its co-text reveal God to us? That's the question of theology. What does this teach us about God? If you've been part of my Wednesday night Bible study or you've heard me preach several times, you'll know that I'm fond of the question, where have we seen something like this before? Have I seen something like this before? For example, here we have Simon Peter seeing Jesus, falling at his feet, declaring his unworthiness before the, the Jesus that he has seen. Jesus bridges the gap between them and then commissions Peter for a mission. Have you seen something like this before in the Bible, Emma? Oh, Isaiah 6, that's right, absolutely. Have you seen something like that before? Yes, in Isaiah 6. Uh, let's walk through it. Sophia's going to put a graphic on the board there. My mistake, I made it a little too wide. Oftentimes, theological meaning is not only in the similarities between two passages, but in the differences. So let's walk through this. In both stories, a man encounters the presence of the holy. In both stories of Isaiah and Luke, uh, the man's reaction is absolute humility and an awareness of his own sinfulness. In both stories, there's a reassurance, an atoning of sorts, but here is where the differences lie, and here is where the meaning is. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah declares he's unclean and that he's a, from a people of unclean lips. And an angelic servant of God takes a hot burning coal and sears his lips. Basically, that, that's representing making him clean. By the way, Isaiah's having a vision. God didn't really like burn his face. But the idea is that because Isaiah is unclean, an atonement, something has to happen before he can be in God's presence. But in Luke 5, Jesus simply has the authority to declare Peter worthy to stand up 
and not be afraid. Jesus is foreshadowing the fact that he would take on the sin of the world. He would atone for your sin and my sin. And that means that no animal sacrifice or punishment by hot coals is necessary. Jesus will take on our sin and the sin of the world. Let's keep going. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah gets a mission to preach the word of God to the Israelites. But if you keep reading after where Keeley left off, you'll realize that Isaiah is supposed to preach this good news of the gospel to people who would have deaf ears and hard hearts. You see, God knew that the Israelites would be hardened to this good news. And Isaiah's mission of preaching was actually a mission of judgment. It's to preach the words of God to a people who are too given over to their idols in order to hear him. It's different in Luke's gospel because Jesus commissions Peter to go spread the good news that would bring people to the knowledge of the saving uh, power of Jesus. Jesus uh, would have Peter and his disciples declare good news to people. After all, that's what Jesus came to do, to fulfill Isaiah 61, when he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. Isaiah's message would fall on deaf ears and blind eyes. Jesus commissions Peter to share the the good news because of the Lord's salvation was at hand. Jesus turns the negative of Isaiah 6 into a positive in Luke 5. And in a similar way, he says, you'll be catching people. Does anyone have a clue where you've heard that before? This one's a little bit more hidden in in the First Testament couple places at least. Uh, there's three, I'll name two. Uh, I, uh, Jeremiah 16, 16 and Amos 4, chapter 2. In both of those scenarios, Israel has gone after idols. And God says, I'm going to judge you. And I'm going to send nations who are going to send hunters and fishers of people. And they're going to gather you in their nets and they're going to capture you and judge you. That's what being a fisher of people would have meant to a first century Jewish person hearing about it. It wasn't a good thing. But here's the interesting thing. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus turns that symbol of judgment upside down. He commissions Peter and James and John to be fishers of people. And the word he uses for catching people is the Greek zogron. It means to catch something alive. Let me say it again slowly. Zoe groan. Zoe, what does your name mean? Eternal life. Zoe is named after the Greek word Zoe, eternal life. The prefix for this word for catching has life built into the front of it. This is a type of catching, not the type of catching fish that you then bring up into your boat and they die from lack of oxygen. This is a kind of gathering catching where the things that you gather in remain alive. Isn't that fantastic? So we're seeing theologically that Jesus is on a mission to save that which was lost. And while he'll end up doing the work of atonement himself, He'll commission his disciples to spread the word and become fishers of people. So that's one way of reading the text theologically and seeing uh, how Jesus is playing with these terms, not playing with them, but reincorporating them and making them into shocking statements, turning negative things on their heads, bringing the kingdom of God. 
I think Jonathan had his hand up really closely after Zoe did. So if you'd like to pick between one of these two, Jonathan, have at it. So they're seeing evangelistically or they're seeing historically. Choose your own adventure. Seeing evangelistically, sure. All right. Seeing evangelistically. This story gives us an example of how Jesus reached people. Right before this story, he's preaching in a synagogue, and that means that part of Jesus' way is that he preaches the Scriptures where people expected to, pre- to hear the Scriptures. Like, when you go to synagogue, you expect to hear the Scriptures read. And he preached kind of what we would call to the choir. He preached to people who knew they were going to get preached to and were expecting to hear the Word of God from the preacher. He preached to people who knew the story but needed reminding. Evangelism is sharing the good news, evangel, good news. Uh, and that happens in the house of worship. We need to be re-evangelized on a regular basis. I took a whole semester class at grad school called Re-Evangelization of the First World. You know, when I grew up in church, we always talked about these foreign missionaries and going off to other places to tell people about Jesus. Do you know there are tons of countries now who send missionaries to the United States to reach us? <laughs> Thank you that they do that. But we need to be re-evangelized. We need to be at a place that welcomes people to hear the evangel on a weekly basis, the good news. But Jesus wasn't just in the synagogue, was he? He was also out among the people. He was in his community. And as the story goes on, Jesus will find more and more resistance in the synagogue. Actually, the people who ran the synagogues ended up not liking him too much or his message. And so Jesus would find himself more and more outside the walls of the synagogue, teaching to the common people, the outcasts of society. And in the story, Jesus goes to some fishermen. He's out on the the, the coast of of the, the Sea of Galilee. And it doesn't say he went to the beach to preach, in fact. He didn't set up a sign and yell at people when they walked by saying, I've got good news for you, whether you want to hear it or not. He was there with the people, and when the crowds began pressing on him, then he gets out into this boat that he turns into a pulpit. His preaching is in response to their interest. But Jesus shows us something else as well. While he cared enough about the crowds to preach to them, he was never one to get excited about large crowds. It's quite different from uh, um, maybe the model in a lot of American churches where, oh, we, we like our big crowds and to draw people in. Jesus, in fact, was always fighting to make the circle smaller. Not because he wanted to be exclusive, because he recognized you can only do so much ministry when you're talking to a big crowd. So, Jesus, the maker of heaven and earth, who's capable of anything, chooses to focus on a few. And in this story, he focuses on Simon Peter. Now, I preach the gospel every single week that I preach. (laughs) I do take some time off. Judging by those listening to the sermon midweek on SoundCloud and all this kind of stuff, I know that I'm preaching to more on a typical basis than just the people gathered here. But I have about 35 people uh, on a list in the front of my Bible uh, that don't go to church, and, uh, and I pray for them on a regular basis. And of those 35, the Lord is putting a handful on my heart 
lately to pray for more fervently than the others. Jesus could gather a crowd, but he focused on Simon Peter in this scene. Notice first what he doesn't do. He does not say, hey, Peter, let me show you how good it would be to follow me. And he doesn't say, Peter, I'd like to take you to lunch and lay out my four-step plan for your, for your life. I'd love to tell you, Peter, how you could gain eternal life. Jesus does not try and sell Simon Peter on his agenda. Instead, Jesus asks Peter for help. Did you catch that? He asks Peter if he could borrow his boat to preach out of. And not just borrow his boat, but he asked Peter if he could take him out in the boat. Fishing boats in those days were between 20 and 30 feet long. On a lake the size of the Sea of Galilee, which is quite large, you couldn't expect to take a boat out and be preaching to the people and stay there. It would be like, oh, you'd move off. Like the wind, the current, everything would, would, would have forced the boat. You'd need a, a, a qualified oarsman like Peter to help you maintain position and be steady. Notice that Jesus didn't make up a need for Peter so that he could have a strategy or an end to talk to him about himself. He had a real need that Peter could really meet better than Jesus could. Can learn a lot from this. How often do we approach the world with our message or our solutions? Not only is that off-putting when people aren't necessarily asking for your help, but it's condescending. People without Jesus, I think, I wouldn't do this if I didn't, definitely need Jesus. But they also have a lot to offer. Part of what Jesus does, I think part of salvation, is unlocking this beautiful, like, he made you a human being. And yes, we need atonement from our sin, but there's a lot of like great stuff he wants to bring out in every single person. I think part of salvation is human flourishing. What if we started there more often than telling people how bad they were, how much they need something that they weren't looking for yet? I have a friend who is a university professor, um, not Ryan, <laughs> a guy who doesn't know Jesus, and I want him to know Jesus really badly. And he's smart, and he's well-read, and he's a critical thinker, and he has a great heart. And sometimes I'll be running into something in a sermon prep or something to do with culture or literature or something, and, and I know that he knows more than me about that stuff. And so I will ask him, hey, what do you think about this? Or have you read about that? And he'll literally help me bring the word to you sometimes. And sometimes I, I get to tell him, like, hey, you know this is going in a sermon. Thanks for helping me out. And I genuinely need his help. Like, I'm not thinking, what are some ends I could have to talk to this person so I could have a strategy for leading them to Jesus? What it does is kind of give him equal footing with me, at least, maybe even higher footing sometimes where he's the expert. And I think it dignifies my friend. And it's not a strategy. It's called relationship. That's what Jesus did evangelistically. And my stance is to look to the Holy Spirit's prompting with my friend and the other 34 people on my list that I pray for. And I'm waiting for the Spirit to show me, to invite me, to nudge me. When is the right time to talk explicitly about certain things? 
And when is the time just to, to be in relationship and to listen? And I want to encourage you that the Holy Spirit is the great evangelist. And if evangelism is something that's like, oh, I don't want to ever do that, or uh, why don't you just start relating to people first? I know many of you do that already. But just relate to people and be asking on their behalf, Lord, I know you love this person more than I do. I know that you want them to know you. Would you, if you see fit, help me to be part of that process? I would be so honored if I could be part of that process. In our text this evening, Peter is helping Jesus by doing what Peter does, fishing. And in this context of his work, in the context of his expertise, uh, it's in that context that the Spirit reveals Jesus to him. It's not in a classroom, not in a sermon, although I think sometimes that does happen. And one final thought about Jesus and his model of, evangel- uh, his model of evangelism is notice the goal. The goal of evangelism for Jesus is not to get people to say the right creeds, and it isn't ultimately to declare loyalty to a set of beliefs or principles. It's ultimately about deciding that following Jesus is worth more than anything else that might stand between me and him. Helping people encounter and follow Jesus is the goal. Dallas Willard was fond of saying, does the gospel I present inspire and encourage people to want to become disciples of Jesus. That's what it's about. It's not, does the gospel I present get people to say the right things? It's, does the gospel I present present such a picture of Jesus that people are like, I totally want to follow that guy. That's what we're about. And that's another reason why preaching to believers, uh, trust me, I preach to myself every week, it's one reason why preaching to believers is evangelism, because I suspect that there are still things you and I need to die to every week. We're never quite all the way there, are we? All right. Thanks, Jonathan, for choosing that one. And you may not have realized this, although you're a man of deduction, I can see. You also chose the third one because there's only one left. So, all right. So, seeing the text historically... Is the Word of God reliable? Did any of this crap really happen? Sorry, kids. We don't don't have time to go into the deeper questions of genre and historicity and ancient historiography, but I do want to point out some of the marks of authenticity in this text. For example, why would Jesus get into a boat when he wasn't even a boatsman to preach to people on the shore when there was, you know, the way that the shore goes up out of the Sea of Galilee, there's a perfectly good hill to preach on. For example, if you're on the beach, the water's over there, why would I get out onto a boat, which I'm not comfortable with, when I could go up here to the shore and preach to you this way? Wouldn't he have done that? Actually, no. Sound travels seven times better over water than it does over land. Physics, sound skips on the water There's no brush and trees and shrubs and grass to absorb sound. It's a natural amphitheater. The Sea of Galilee has natural coves, and by Gennesaret, you can still see today, there is a cove that goes in. So theoretically, Jesus is there with the fishermen. The crowds are pressing him in on the shore. He gets out in the boat, and the sound travels to the crowd. It even maybe bounces off the hill that I just suggested he may have Uh, preached on instead. So, no, it makes a lot of sense that he would get out in a boat. In fact, let's put a boat picture up there, Fia, and uh, 
That's similar to, that's actually the Lake Gennesaret right there. Um, that's another name for the Sea of Galilee. And a boat that is akin to what Jesus may have been in, although now we think that, um, now that we've actually found a few old hulks of these fishing boats from the first century, we actually think they're a little bit bigger, between 20 and 30 feet. That one looks to me about 16 or 18, but hey, I'm a boat guy. I like boats. How likely is it that Jesus would just come up to a guy like Peter after the guy has fished all night long, washing his nets, obviously exhausted, and say, just get in his boat. First of all, you notice that Jesus just gets in the boat first and he says, hey, will you take me out? It's like he gets in the guy's boat first without asking. It's kind of weird. How likely is that that would happen? Well, in the ancient Near Eastern world, it was a world of reciprocity, a world of favors. In fact, in much of that culture, it still is. It's no accident that just a few verses earlier, Jesus healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Remember, she had the fever and he cast it out. In this worldview then, Simon Peter owes Jesus a favor. And in that culture, Peter could not have said no to Jesus. If he would have said no to Jesus in a public setting like that, it would have brought great shame on his name and his family's name. So, in reality, Peter couldn't have said no to Jesus. Kind of nice strategy, Jesus. And it makes this entire story believable, at least that part. Another little detail that rings of truth is that Jesus sat down to teach, and teachers in the synagogue would sit down to teach. It was a symbol of authority, but in many synagogues, there was actually a chair that's called the seat of Moses, and so when the teacher would sit in the seat of Moses, it is as if they're proclaiming uh, the authority of Moses because they're oftentimes preaching the words of Moses or the book of Moses, right? And what about the catch, though? That's what we really want to know about. Was a catch of that magnitude Truly miraculous. I mean, couldn't it just be believable that they went out and they happened to catch a lot of fish? It's completely plausible, right? Well, consider this. Uh, The type of nets described in this story and the parallel accounts in the other Gospels are made from white linen, which makes them very strong. However, white linen nets are only used to fish at night. Why? Because they're white linen, and in the daytime, fish can see them. I'm not going to swim into a white linen net. Uh, that's why um, modern fishermen today use like nearly invisible fishing line and these type of fishermen using these white linen nets fished at nighttime furthermore Peter was a businessman and a professional fisherman if he thought it was beneficial to fish in the daytime like he would do better um, he would do that so there's no reason why Jesus's plan should work But Peter humors this religious teacher and uh, set out to fish in the spot that Jesus uh, identifies. And lo and behold, there are so many fish that he has to signal to his partners to come help. Now, this is another uh, ring of truth. Kenneth Kenneth Bailey points out that uh, the historical authenticity of this moment, because Peter does not yell for help. Remember how that sounds, traveling seven times over water thing? Peter doesn't quite yet know about Jesus, right? All he knows is that this Jesus cat has just shown him a new spot where you can catch this many fish. And as a businessman, come on, think about it. 
You don't want the competition knowing about your new fishing hole, right? Because it was out on the deep. These guys fished along natural springs that came up in the shallows. So this is a new spot. Peter would not ever fish there. His competition would never know about this. So instead of, hey, guys, help me, he's like, it says he signals with his hand. He doesn't signal with his voice. Just a little mark of authenticity in the story. As for the miraculous catch, is it possible for this to happen in nature? One would have to agree that even though possible, it's highly unlikely since the type of fish that they were equipped to catch uh, were only available at night. And this is where the readers, you and I, have knowledge that Simon Peter does not have. His friends don't have the knowledge that we have. And what is that knowledge that we have? The first four chapters of Luke. We've just read the angels coming to Mary and the shepherds and telling us who Jesus is. We have read Mary's Magnificat telling us that this Jesus is more than just a holy man or a prophet. We've read about Simeon and Anna telling us uh, about Jesus' identity. We've read about the Magi coming from the East to worship this Jesus. We've read about at Jesus' baptism how you've got uh, the Spirit hovering over in the form of a dove like, like God hovered over the creation and the waters of chaos and the Father saying, this is my beloved Son whom I am well pleased. We as the reader know all of this stuff that Simon Peter doesn't know. With that knowledge, it is completely within the realm of possibility that the one who invented fish and seas and day and night would be able to get those fish into the nets for Peter. And after Jesus is resurrected from the dead and he encounters Peter in John chapter 21, he does this same thing again. He tells Peter to put his nets down at the right side of the boat, a specific instruction, and in the daytime, and Peter comes up with so many fish in John 21 that he can't pull them in. And at that moment, he declares, it is the Lord. In biblical studies, we call that multiple attestation. And it's the mark, even for critics, of a story being authentic. All that to say, we have good warrant to trust in the historical reliability of this passage. And that's one way to read this passage historically. Now, I've got a top secret one here. <clears throat> For your eyes only. I think I got a little carried away. This was super fun. <laughs> All right. Whoa. Seeing and being seen. Seeing and being seen. Prior to this story, Peter, of course, had seen Jesus. Uh, he saw Jesus heal his mother-in-law, and as we heard in that story, as soon as his, Peter's mother-in-law is healed, she gets up and she waits upon Jesus. She serves him. She's restored to her position in community, and at, if we know anything about this culture, uh, the minimum she did when she served Jesus is serve him food, okay? And you don't just eat by yourself. You eat with the family, right? And then maybe the community. So Simon Peter had not only seen Jesus do a healing, but he'd actually had dinner with him, most likely communed with him. So he'd seen him. And yet Peter hadn't really seen Jesus yet. Because soon after, Jesus is at the shore of the sea and crowds are pressing in and he asks Peter for a favor. And Peter obliges and takes Jesus out in the boat so he can use it to perform uh, his, his preaching. Now, Jesus wanted to preach, but he had another mission. He was going to reveal himself to Peter. 
And so he encourages Peter, right, to, to fish in broad daylight. We, we, we know all this stuff, and, the, and this crazy miracle happens. Uh, Peter almost reluctantly goes along with Jesus. One commentator paraphrases the scene like this. Listen, boss, my boys and I are professionals. We know where the fish feed. It's along the shore, and the best time to catch them is at night. That's why we were out there all night. We're not stupid. We've just worked the fishing areas and caught nothing. We're dead tired, and I've stayed awake a few more hours to help you with your preaching mission. You rabbis think you know everything. I, mean, I was thinking about this, like, what if I came to your work? Right? <laughs> Emily, that's not how you do, I don't know, even what you do. You know, like, that's not how you do an IV or whatever. Just shut up, pastor, right? But Jesus comes out and tries to tell these guys what to do. You rabbis think you know everything, and now you order me to fish in the daytime in the deep water? Whatever. Let's go out and see who really knows something about fishing, right? So this is kind of this commentator's take on maybe how Peter's feeling about this. You know the story, right? Massive catch, signaling for help, sinking boats. And then there's the statement. And I want you to pay attention. Uh, even if you have your Bibles out, you can take a look at it. Uh, when Simon Peter saw, in some of the translations, it'll say, when Simon Peter saw, and then in italics, which means that's not in the real Greek sentence, in italics, it'll say that. So when Peter saw that, or when Peter saw it. But that word doesn't exist in the Greek sentence. It's literally, when Peter saw, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. What did he see? There's no object in the sentence. It doesn't say, when Peter saw the massive catch, he fell down at Jesus' feet. It doesn't say, when Peter saw uh, that he was witness to a miracle, he fell down at Jesus' feet. It simply says, when Peter saw, what did he see? Let me suggest two things. First, he saw in that moment that he was in the presence of the holy. The miracles with his mother-in-law, the preaching with authority, the massive catch, it's like it all came together and, oh, aha, Oh, oh, I'm in the presence of the holy. And he saw in such a way that he changed his address to Jesus. In verse 5, Peter addresses Jesus with a respectful but common greeting, epistata, boss, sir, chief, master, a term of respect. But when he sees he calls Jesus kurios, Lord. It wasn't just Peter seeing Jesus clearly for the first time. It was the fact that Peter realized, this is the second thing, Peter realized in that moment that he had been seen. When Isaiah the prophet was in the presence of God, he fell on his face and confessed his sinfulness. In the same way, Peter recognizes that he's been seen. He's in the presence of the holy. He's exposed and he's humbled before Jesus. What a terrifying experience. Most of us spend time and energy to mask our faults and to present ourselves as somewhat having it together. Some of us are even so good at giving a little, tipping our hand a little bit of some of our faults. 
We keep the real big ones behind. Oh, you're so authentic. Because that's a badge of courage in our culture, isn't it? We hide our physical blemishes. I'm not dyeing my hair yet. We build a persona on social media to present ourselves. Or we, I know kids, I don't envy you being at school these days, but maybe carrying yourself in a certain way, giving off a certain persona so that you fit in. Most of us would shudder if people could see what we actually think, what we actually feel, what we actually want. But in the presence of God, nothing is hidden. Sophia, you put up that image there. (laughs) Sometimes people think that God is like the great eye of Sauron lidless, always watching, always ready to condemn, always ready to shame us. But Jesus presents a different picture of God. Take it away. That's not the picture that Jesus presents. Jesus in this scene isn't looking to make Peter grovel. He doesn't reveal himself to make Peter feel shame or to prove how low Peter is compared to himself. Instead, what he does is allows Peter for a moment to experience that reality because reality is good. Any good counselor will talk to you or implicitly their their goal is to reveal truth to the situation. If we're going to heal, we have to be real with where we're actually at. And so Jesus allows Peter to see who he is and to feel what it feels like when you realize, oh my, I'm in the presence of greatness and I am not worthy. That's an important feeling to feel every once in a while. Peter felt it, sinful, unclean, out of his element, outclassed. And the seeing and being seen moves Peter to an act of humility, drops to his knees. Lord, get away. I am not worthy. And that's exactly the key. Jesus is not looking for perfect people. (laughs) Yay, there's none. He isn't looking for people with a particular education or a particular skill set or a particular social strata. He's looking for honest humility. Jesus can do a lot with a humble person. Does anyone remember who first named God? God gave his own name, Yahweh. But there's someone who gave God a name. Anyone remember It's the most unlikely person. You want to yell it out? Yes, thank you. Hagar. Hagar, an unlikely character in a Jewish Bible to be recorded as giving the living God a name. Hagar is, of course, an Egyptian slave woman. If you were to, like, ask uh, an early Jewish person from the Mosaic area, um, what's about the lowest person you could think of? Well, definitely an Egyptian and probably a woman and a slave. Maybe a child would be a little worse. I don't know, in that, in that worldview. 
for this Egyptian woman slave who had been used by Abraham and Sarah to try and produce a child. Then when they realize, oh my gosh, that makes me feel horrible, then kicks her out, and she's in the wilderness and about ready to die, and she cries out, and God sees her. And she says, you are El Roy. You are the God who sees. And God blessed her and took care of her and her child. And I wasn't a person who was arrogant. That wasn't a person who had it all together. That wasn't a person with any kind of qualifications. And it's beautiful that she's part of the story of God. She's part of the story of the people of God. She's part of the lineage of Jesus. Once Peter humbles himself, Jesus raises him up and not only comforts him, but commissions him, gives him a job, and invites him to come and follow, to be his disciple. And that's what Jesus does with many people in the Bible. And that's what he continues to do with people today. Let me ask you, when you read the stories of Jesus, what do you see? I'm going to close by reading a prayer from Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians is falling out of my Bible. For this reason, too, I, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you, while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, open so that you would know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Lord, open our hearts, I pray. Help us to see you clearly. Help us to see who we really are. Help us to be men and women, boys and girls of humility, Because it is then, Lord, that you, you lift us up. You call us your own and you commission us to important work in the world. Bless you, Lord. You are so good.